Our text this evening that we read from John's Gospel, I'd like you to turn with me for a moment to Romans chapter 8. And as an introduction, we'll read verses 31 and 32. This is page 1135. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Every summer when I'm on holiday, I have a, I have a modest goal. I don't think I ever achieve it, but nonetheless, I try. I try to purchase one serious book and read it. My subject is history. That's what I studied in America, and that's why I came here. So each summer, I buy a serious history book with the desire of taking it with me to the beach and reading it through before I come back. Because I never succeed. I've got books with bookmarks some like halfway through or three-quarters through. But this year, my serious book was a book called A Team of Rivals. And it was a bio roughly a biography of Abraham Lincoln. Now, it's, you might be surprised to know that there are probably 10,000 biographies, more than 10,000 biographies of Lincoln. Lincoln was our 16th president. He served for just over four years. He, got, he was president during the American Civil War. He freed the slaves. You get the story. But you think to yourself, how could you write 10,000 books about one person, no matter how important, no matter how significant he may be? Because the facts really aren't controverted. People are agreed, this is what happened, and these are the events of his life, and these are the events of his presidency. This was where he was born, and this is where he died. There are some question marks, some question marks maybe around uh, the, his death particularly, but nonetheless, you know, you've got a shared uh, body of evidence that people say, okay, I agree on that. So the reason why that you have a lot of books about Lincoln or a lot of books about other subjects is that people differ in their interpretation. They agree, okay, this happened, but they disagree when you begin to ask another question, well, what does it mean? What does it mean for our, ourselves? How can we understand these events? What does it mean for us? Why is this important? What does this have to say to us? And that's why you have 10,000 books on Lincoln. That's why you have countless books on the, the Bible or on Jesus. Because you might be agreed on the details. You might be agreed on the dates. You might be agreed on the facts and figures. But the challenge is, what does it mean? And then even more personally, what does it mean for me? How does this fact or how does this hit story, how does this impact me personally? And with you this evening, I'd like to try to answer the, the, these three questions because really in many ways every message or every sermon should try to address three, three questions. We should answer the what question. You know, we're looking tonight at the death of Jesus. We should be able to say, well, what happened? Give us the, give us the details. But then secondly, we need to do more than that. We need to answer the question, so what? Why is this important? Why does this matter? Why do these events 2,000 years ago have any impact upon you and any impact upon me? But thirdly, and this is where it gets personal, now what? Okay, we hear it, we understand it, but what do we do with it? How do we take this knowledge, how do we take this understanding and put it into practice? What, what practical benefit, what, what, what reason do we have for gathering here on a Sunday evening? How does what we hear here, here tonight how does what we learn, how does that change us? Change the way we think, change the way we act, change the way we speak, change the way we engage with different people. So three questions, the what, the so what, and then the now what. 
And to do that, I'd like to look at three different parts of the Bible because we need to take the whole of the Bible together to understand the full implication of what it means that Jesus died, that he died on the cross, that he died to forgive our sins, and that in turn, we now live new and vital lives. So I'd like to look first at the, the facts, what happened. And that's why we read from John chapter 19. We could have chosen any of the four gospels, any of the four biographies of Jesus to give us the facts, the details. If you're of my age or older, if, if you're a big fan of old television, you'll remember that there was a television show long before uh, NYPD Blue or The Wire. The best, the cop draw, the police drama was, uh, was Dragnet. And the, the star of that show was uh, Detective Joe Friday. And, and his tagline was, just the facts, ma'am. Well, I'll give you just the facts about what happened on those days. Let's look roughly at that period from Thursday to Friday. Thursday, the, the Last Supper, till Friday, Crucifixion Day, Burial Day. And as we turn to John's Gospel, we read from John 19, but if you go back into John, really John's, uh, into John 18 and through to John 19, what do we see? We see, first of all, betrayal. That one of the inner circle turned on Jesus, one of the twelve handed him over for money. We see, secondly, denial. Again, one of the inner circle, Peter, this time three times says, I don't know who this man is. I don't know who you're talking about. I, I don't know what you're saying. We then have abandonment, and this is by ten. So you have the betrayer, you have the denier, and then you have the abandoned, the ten who just ran away and had nothing more to do with Jesus. And then the rejection. Jesus, who was so popular, and Jesus, who was so warmly welcomed in Jerusalem on the previous Sunday, Palm Sunday, now it seems that not one voice was raised in his defense, but every voice seemed to be saying, no, not him, give us Barabbas, away with him, crucify him. And then the flogging, the soldiers on Pilate's command, the Romans were good at many things, they could build roads, they could communicate, but one thing that they were particularly good at was execution, if it was their job to execute somebody, the Roman soldiers knew exactly what that meant, and they performed their duties quite uh, efficiently. The flogging and then the mocking. The soldiers mocked Jesus. The crowd mocked Jesus. Everybody had something to say as a taunt. No longer were they welcoming Jesus. No longer were they singing his praise. Now they're saying, well, look, you helped others. You come down if you are the Christ. You saved others. Save yourself. The mocking, and then finally, the condemnation. He was condemned by the crowd who chose Barabbas over him. He was condemned by the Jews who convicted him of blasphemy. He was condemned by the Romans, by Pilate, for, for the charge of treason that he claimed to be a king. And of course, we know there's only one king, and that king is Caesar. And then finally, the final blow, the crucifixion, that he was given the ultimate punishment for the ultimate crime. He paid the ultimate penalty. There was no harsher punishment that the Romans could inflict. And this was set aside for the most dangerous of criminals. And Jesus was crucified and his death was guaranteed. The only thing that was surprising about his death was actually how quickly it occurred. It was, the timing was short and they had to make sure that the bodies were off the crosses before sunset because it was a special Sabbath. It was a Passover feast, and they had to make sure that this work of execution was done and dusted before the special Sabbath began. So the death was quickly followed 
by the, by the burial. So these are the facts. These are the facts that the gospel writers agree on, all the four gospel writers agree on, and these are the facts that, that we are quite familiar with. I'm not telling you anything that you don't know. But what's obvious, and John brings this to our attention, is that there was very much a plan and a purpose, and that Jesus was very much in charge of what was happening. That seems quite remarkable. It seems quite remarkable that a convicted prisoner, a man under sentence, and a man who was being crucified was in charge. Surely it was Pilate who was in charge, or the Roman officials, the soldiers. Maybe it was the Jewish authorities. They were in charge. But no, John's gospel especially describes even the crucifixion as a victory for Jesus, that he was there in charge and in control. For example, in verse 28 of John 19, later knowing that all was now completed, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And then the jar of wine vinegar was there, they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Even those words, it is finished, or paid in full, Jesus was aware that he was victorious, that the debt had been satisfied, that the bridge, the, the, the gulf had now been bridged. So Jesus is in, is in charge and in control, and everything, even down to the smallest detail, is going to plan. That's why we read down to verse 37, because even the fact that Jesus' legs weren't broken, even the fact that the swords, uh, the, the spear uh, uh, stabbed Jesus' side in the flow of blood and water, even down to those very details we're told in verse 36, these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. All according to plan. Jesus in control, Jesus in charge. So this is the what happened. So if you want to ask the question, what happened on those hours between the time that Jesus celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples and those, that hour when he was laid in the tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea, you could say these are the facts. This is what, this is what occurred. But this is not sufficient. You see, becoming a Christian or being a Christian is not simply satisfying uh, an examination of dates and places and people. I think that's why people think history is so boring because they think, oh, well, you just have to memorize dates. Well, 1066 or 1660 or 1770, and they think, well, that's dull and then that's dry. But the facts and figures are important. The opposite extreme is for people who say, well, it's really what you believe. It doesn't really matter if it happened. It doesn't really matter if it was said, but if you have faith and if your faith is strong and if your faith is sincere. But you see, we have a faith that's rooted in history. We have a faith that's rooted in a person who lived in a place, who spoke and who acted and who performed miracles, who lived and who died and who was raised again from light, from death to life. So facts matter. The facts that this, that, that this man, Jesus, was historic, that he lived in a real place, that he interacted with real people, that he said real things and did real things. But the facts themselves are not sufficient. To get the interpretation, to answer the second question, so what? It's interesting, we have to go back. Uh, we have to go back to the Old Testament. I'd like you to turn with me for a moment to uh, Isaiah 53. Because in Isaiah 53, we have the answer to the question, why does this matter? What was he doing? What, what, what did he accomplish? Because if you just read the crucifixion accounts, even though he has some of these triumphant sayings, 
Yet nonetheless, you would say, well, unfortunately, it seems like the good man died. The, the pure man, the, the, the kind man, the man who never did anything wrong, it seems like he was overwhelmed. The combination of the religious authorities and the political authorities was just too much for him. His enemies were too strong and too many. But not so. Because the cross, on the cross, we see something significant happening. Turn with me, for example, in Isaiah 53 at verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. These events are not random events. The death of Jesus was not a senseless tragedy. It wasn't a terrible miscarriage of justice. But there was a real plan and purpose that was being worked out. Because there on the cross, as Isaiah tells us, Isaiah is looking forward seven centuries He's looking forward 700 years and saying, let me tell you what's going to happen, but even more, let me tell you what it means. Because Jesus is there paying the price for, he's paying the price for sin, he's paying the price for rebellion, he's paying the price for our iniquities. And the question that this will have to challenge us is, are we included in this number? Isaiah is using this plural pronoun, our, or us. He's not saying me, and he's not saying you, and he's not saying they, but he's saying us and our. And we have to ask ourselves this evening, if we plan on sitting at the Lord's table, are we in that number? Are we part of the us? Are we part of the our or part of the we? The ones for whom the Lord Jesus suffered and died. The ones for whom he paid the price and satisfied the debt. So Isaiah answers the question, for whom? You see, Jesus didn't die for the righteous. He didn't die for the pure. He didn't die for the the successful in this world. He didn't die for the the pure in heart. No, because the answer to that would be, well, then he didn't die for anyone. But he died for those who have missed the mark. He died for those who failed the exam. He died for those who didn't live up even to their own standards, not to mention the standard of God. He died for people just like us. People who have failed in word, failed in action, failed in thought. People who have left things undone, things that we know we should have said, things that we know we should have done. We were too busy, couldn't be bothered, had other things on our mind. And that's exactly the kind of people for whom the Lord died. But as you go down to verse 10 of Isaiah 53, we realize that there's a plan. That this again wasn't by accident or by random chance. But it was the Lord's plan in verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. The death of Jesus was not a defeat. The death of Jesus was not a victory of evil over good, of darkness over light, but the death of Jesus was God's plan and purpose to destroy the evil one, God's plan and purpose to rescue, to free those who were in bondage to slavery, to give eternal life to those who would otherwise be destroyed and be destroyed everlastingly. So we have to recognize that on the cross, Jesus won the victory, the ultimate victory. 
Jesus paid the ultimate price in order that we could receive the ultimate benefit, the ultimate blessing, the ultimate reward. So there is a plan, and it's the Lord's plan. And notice the end of that plan in verse 11. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus accomplished his plan. Jesus secured his victory, that he justified, my righteous servant will justify many. And tonight, if anyone should be optimistic in this world, if anyone should have a positive outlook on life, if anyone should have a, a uh, glass half at full rather than a glass half empty attitude, it should be Christians, because we know what he has done. We know the opposition he faced, we know the challenges he confronted, and we know the victory that he secured. And you see, when, he said, when the Bible says that my righteous servant will justify many, he will bear their iniquities, well, that gives us personal hope. Because if he has done it, then it doesn't rely upon me. If he has done it, it doesn't rely upon you. You don't have to add. You don't have to contribute. You don't have to make your own little addition to what he has done because he has justified, he has satisfied, he has accomplished. But what's more is that if we have personal hope, then that gives us hope for others. That gives us hope for the people that we work with. It gives us hope for our families and our friends. It gives us hope for the city, the city of Dundee where you live or the city of Edinburgh where I live. It gives us hope for this world because we realize that Jesus died not for the few, not for the select, but for the many. And not for those who deserved it, but for those who didn't deserve it. In fact, deserve quite the opposite. Instead of wrath and judgment, they receive justification, they receive forgiveness, they receive grace and mercy. So Isaiah answers the question, so what? Okay, John tells us that Jesus died on the cross. Isaiah, interestingly, 700 years earlier, tells us what does it all mean? Why is this so important? Why are we gathered here this evening to remember an event that happened 2,000 years ago? How many other events do you actively remember? How many other events from the mid uh, or the early Roman Empire period that you actually celebrate? I would suggest very few. Uh, in my own country, we remember a few events. We remember the 4th of July. That's 200 and some odd years ago now. But even that, you know, we remember our birthdays. We remember anniversaries. We remember certain big events. But there's very few ancient events that you and I will ever remember, let alone celebrate, let alone reflect upon. And yet this one we do. So we have the what happened, we have so what, why is this important? But then, and this is why we looked at Romans, now what? What's the implication? What does this mean for us? Because I can give you the history lesson. Isaiah can give you the theology. He can explain what this all means. But it's more than history and it's more than theology because the God of heaven and earth, the one who created all things, has come to meet with you and me. It's a personal experience and it's a life-transforming event. So turn back to uh, Romans chapter 8. We were reading from this earlier. But this is where we have the implication, what it means for you and what it means for me. And if you look at verse 28, we begin with an overriding principle. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, 
who have been called according to his purpose. So that's the overall principle that God is at work and that God is at work for good. Many will conclude that God isn't at work. Others might conclude that God might be working, but he's not working for good. But the Bible makes it quite clear that he's doing both. He's at work and he's working all things together for good. That's where faith comes in. That's where faith comes in that we recognize that he knows more than we do. Because if you're honest with yourself and if I'm honest with myself, we look at our own lives, we look at the world in which we live, and we look at verse 28 of chapter 8 in Romans and we say, I see the words on the page, but I have difficulty reconciling these words with the events of my life. I have difficulty recognizing this verse or reconciling this verse with the events of this world. Why does this massive earthquake hit the country of Chile? Why do all the, the countries around the Pacific Rim and in the Pacific Islands, why are these people now living in a state of fear? Why do we live in a world where there's famine? Why do we live in a war world where there's civil war and where, where there's want and where there's poverty and where there's abuse and where there's deprivation? And yet the Bible says we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. So faith comes in where we have to trust God, where we have to take him at his word, where we have to say, God, I believe that you know even when I don't. I believe that you're at work even when I can't see it. And I believe that you have a plan and purpose that is bigger than me and that is broader than I can understand and is, and is bigger than I can comprehend. So that's the overriding principle. But then we have the evidence. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? We begin, we come back to where we began with. And these verses give us this compelling evidence because the apostle Paul, who met with Jesus, by the way, on the road to Damascus, whose life was forever transformed because he had a personal encounter with Jesus, the risen, living Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul is saying, look at the cross. What did God do? He gave us his own son. He did not spare him, but he gave him up for us all. So if that is true, then the natural conclusion is God must be for us. God must be on our side. If he did this great thing, how will then he leave anything else undone? How will he fail to give us anything else that we might, live, might need? We often make arguments. Sometimes we make arguments quite foolishly. Sometimes you might make an argument from something less to something greater. If I had to, I could run a mile. I wouldn't run it very quickly. I wouldn't, it wouldn't be a pretty sight, but I could run a mile. But I'm not, if I say to you I can run a mile, I'm not going to then conclude that I can run a marathon. If I say to you I can swim 10 lengths in a swimming pool, I'm not going to tell you I can swim the channel. Because that's, a, that, that's not a very sensible analogy. If I can do something small, well, then I can do something big. But the, the opposite argument is given here, that if God does the biggest thing, then surely he can do something that's smaller. So if I tell him, and you wouldn't believe it, I can't do it, but if I told you I can swim the channel, I can swim from England to France, and then I say, well, by the way, I can swim 100 yards in the swimming pool. Well, you say, well, of course, if you can do the big thing, you can surely do the small thing. If, if you can run the marathon, you can surely run a mile. And this is what we're told here, that if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? So you see, the Apostle Paul is saying, this is what it means for you. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus paid the ultimate price. 
Jesus died that we could live. And therefore, the evidence is that God is now on our side. He's now with us. And if he is with us, nobody can stand against us. I don't know if you ever have this at sports days or Sunday school outings, but we always used to have tug of war. And some, you know, you'd always want the big guy. You don't want the, you'd want the heaviest guy. You'd want the, the, the most substantial person on your team because if that person is your anchor man, quite literally, then you know that no matter how hard the other team pulls, if you've got the biggest guy, the strongest guy, then you're not going to be moved. We have the biggest, we have the strongest, we have the most powerful, we have the ultimate one on our side, God himself. How do we know? He's made the heavens and earth. How do we know? He's created all things out of nothing. He sustains everything. He's in complete control. He's in complete charge. He knows, he sees, and he is always able to do anything and to do everything. The Bible says what we can imagine, what we can ask, even more than we could ask, even more than we can imagine, that's the God in whose presence we are gathered tonight. And he is for us. He is on our side. He cares about us. And with you, I'd like to just notice the obvious implications. If God is on our side, if the, if the crucifixion shows one thing, it shows us that Jesus Christ is now aligning himself with people like you and me. He has come to save us. He's come to set us free. He's come to give us eternal life. And by faith, we receive that great gift. And by faith, we are now part of this great number. And by faith, we now receive every blessing that he has purchased. So if that is the case, then we can say that now God is for us. He is not against us. God is for us, and it doesn't matter how many may be, may be opposed to us. Look at verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. We need not fear any foe. We need not worry about any opposition. We need not be concerned about any difficulty or any challenge. In the city of Dundee, I better quote McChain. And it was McChain who testified. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Jesus is interceding for you. Jesus is praying for us. Jesus knows the challenge. Jesus knows the difficulties. He knows the opposition. And we're told, who is who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Who is he that condemns? There's no more condemnation. There's no more judgment. There's no more charges because everything has been dealt with. Everything has been dealt with by Jesus, so therefore we are free. There's no burden hanging over us. There's no cloud over that hanging over us. There's no burdens on our shoulders anymore. We have been set free. So there's no charge. There's no accusation. Verse 35 tells us that we have this new security. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, we face death. For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. The Bible is quite clear in saying, yes, there is hardship. There is persecution. There is famine. There might be nakedness, danger, or sword. But none of these things can ever separate you because you are completely safe and you are completely secure. So we have a new security, we also have a new status. In verse 37, know in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In the context of this was written, if you ask somebody in the first century AD, name a conqueror. 
Julius Caesar, he was a conqueror. Alexander the Great, he was a conqueror. And this Apostle Paul, this Saul of Tarsus, is saying that the simple, ordinary, unexciting believer is more than that conqueror, greater than Alexander the Great, more powerful than Julius Caesar, greater kingdoms than Augustus. So whatever analogy you want to use, whatever illustration you want to use, we are more than. We are more powerful. We are more loved. We are more provided for. We are more safe. We are more secure. Whoever you can think of, if Jesus is on our side, if God is with us, nobody can stand against us, and nobody can compare to us because we have everything. Everything has been done for us. Everything is provided to us, and everything is guaranteed for us in the life that is to come. We have this new status more than conquerors. And with this I close at verse 38. We have this unconditional guarantee. Do you know what a guarantee is when you buy a product, you buy a car? 99 times out of 100, the guarantees that you're given are conditional. If you do this, then the guarantee becomes null and void. If you misuse the product, if you don't uh, send in the warranty card, if you, don't, if you keep it too long, or if you miss... Mis, mis, misapply it in one way or another. There's small print that means that the guarantee is null and void. The guarantee that God gives us here by the Apostle Paul is this. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 38, Paul is saying, in a very poetic way, in a very memorable way, he's saying, nothing, nowhere, at any time, can ever separate you or me from God. It's absolutely impossible. That's an ironclad guarantee. There's no exclusions. There's no exceptions. There's no small print. So you see tonight, if you feel like you are holding on to God by a thread, if you think that your faith is weak, that you're struggling, that might be true. But that's not, a, that's not material here. What is material is the commitment that God has to you, that he won't let you go. He won't let you fall. He won't cast you off. That's his promise that he qualifies without any qualification. There is nothing that will separate, nothing that will take you away from God. The love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord has triumphed at the cross and continues to triumph in your life that God holds us and keeps us and protects us and preserves us. It doesn't mean there won't be trials. doesn't mean there won't be persecution. doesn't mean there won't be hard times. doesn't mean you might not be struggling with your faith, your relationship with God, or, or your relationship with others. But it does say this, that the unconditional guarantee given to you tonight, God is for you. He can't be against you. If God is for you, no one can be against you. And if God is for you, nothing will separate you from him because of Jesus, because of who Jesus is, because of what Jesus has accomplished, and that tonight is why we are gathered here to worship him. That is tonight why we are gathered together to remember him, and that's why we need encouragement. That's why we need not only to know what happens, but what it means and what it means for us. So it's my prayer and it's my plea that we hear these words that are spoken we take them to heart and we believe them because the one who is speaking is trustworthy. God never goes back on his promise. God never says yes and then says no. God never contradicts himself. His promises are as true today as they were written 2,000 years ago or 2,700 years ago in the time of Isaiah. Valid tonight, valid for you. Do you take him at his word? Do you accept what Jesus has done for you 
And do you rejoice in his victory on your behalf? And do you rejoice in this new security, this new status, and in this unconditional guarantee? Because if God is for us, who can be against us? Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks tonight for the gospel. We give you thanks tonight for Jesus to whom the gospel points. We thank you that he lived the perfect life and he died the death on our behalf, that we can live and live forever. Strengthen our faith, we pray. Encourage any tonight who are struggling. Encourage any tonight who feel far from you. And encourage, Lord, tonight any who are seeking. We thank you that the seeker becomes a finder, that those who knock will find that doors are opened and those who ask receive. Lord, we thank you for the message of the gospel, for the promise of the gospel, and we thank you that you, the one who speaks, is faithful. What you say you do, what you promise you fulfill. Enable us to trust you, enable us to serve you, enable us to remember, and enable us to tell others the good news of Jesus as we pray in his name. Amen.